I am so excited to release this conversation into the world because I found it incredibly enriching. My guest on this episode is Andrew Pace. Andrew Pace is a healthy home concierge and founder of the Green Design Center, a leading resource for homeowners and contractors looking to source products that are healthy and green, and also homeowners and contractors who are looking to receive expert consulting advice on designing and building healthy green homes. Andrew's the host of the weekly Non-Toxic Environments podcast. He is a worldwide expert on green and healthy building products and services customers and contractors from around the globe. As founder of the oldest healthy building supply company in the United States, Andrew has become one of the single most helpful and educational experts dealing with the day-to-day concerns of those individuals who suffer from allergies, asthma, and chemical sensitivities. So if you're looking to redesign a space, renovate, or build a home, and you'd like to choose safer building materials for healthier indoor environments, then this podcast will be invaluable. As you listen to this conversation and you become more mindful about how your indoor environment may be influencing your symptoms, health, and well-being, keep in mind that my Detox Academy is an invaluable resource available to you at any time. It's a monthly membership. You can cancel any time if you're on a budget, but it's an online library of the brands that I use for my family. And the brands that I share at the Detox Academy are a result of years of research on what the science has said about toxic chemicals, heavy metals, and radiation from our everyday products, and the practical solutions. What I share is also a result of the trial and error of trying many different products and solutions in my life. There's also Q&A, so you don't have to learn how to detox your lifestyle alone. I am available to help and we can learn as a community. And if you're more motivated to eliminate toxic chemicals and heavy metals from your life as aggressively as you can in 40 days, whether you're trying to prepare for the healthiest pregnancy possible, or you're preparing for a new baby, or you're in remission after chemotherapy, or if you have autoimmune issues, then check out my 40-day home detox. It can transform your life. You can learn more about this and much more through my free email newsletter. If you're not already a subscriber, then text the word detox spelled D-E-T-O-X to the number 66866 to learn more. Now here's my conversation with Andrew, which I hope you find as helpful as I did. Hi, I'm Sophia Ruan Goucher, author of the critically acclaimed best-selling book, A to Z of Detoxing, The Ultimate Guide to Reducing Our Toxic Exposures, and founder of Ruan Living, the only wellness lifestyle brand that simplifies practical non-toxic living. Welcome to my podcast. Hello. Hi, so nice to connect with you. It's very nice to finally meet you. I've really enjoyed getting to know you on your website, the Green Design Center. Oh, wonderful. Thank you. 
Oh, I wish I knew about your website and service and you a long time ago. <laughs> I had a lot of clients over the years tell me that. And I say, well, at least you know about me now. So hopefully there's something I can do to assist. I know that we've had some common friends in the business too. Like who? Angie Cummings. Yes. Yeah. How do you know Angie? She's been a client of mine since she first became chemically sensitive many years ago. Okay. And so, you know, she is, and I wouldn't say represents the average customer. She's obviously somebody who is on that far end of being sensitive. But for a long time, when I first got started, she would be the typical customer. And so now that we've expanded into selling materials to people who just don't want to become sensitive, we don't get as many like her anymore, but there's still more and more that show up. And she's, she's a good person for me to work with because she understands so much of this now. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there's so much I want to dive into. Okay, and good. Part of why I'm so excited to talk to you is because you've been in this business, healthier, building materials and indoor environments for 30 years. Yes. I'm sure you've seen lots of changes in this niche. Yes. And so I'm really looking forward to learning what you've observed in terms of not only the products that are available mm -hmm. and like certifications and just how consumers can identify safer products, but also you've probably noticed big changes in your consumers. Yes. So as you were just talking about Angie and how she used to be a typical consumer, why don't we mm -hmm start with that. What was a typical consumer and what are you noticing now? And then at some point, I'd love to hear how you came to specialize in this area. I'm sure you have your own personal story that would resonate with others. Okay. Well, I will say that when I first started this business, which is back in 1992, 93, 95% of my client base were people with extreme chemical sensitivity. These were, you know, if you remember the movie, The Boy in the Plastic Bubble, this was my customer base, people who just couldn't be around traditional building materials, traditional home goods. They couldn't walk into a department store without a headache, nausea, or even anaphylactic shock because of how toxic these environments were. And at the time, I knew nothing about chemical sensitivity. I just knew that, you know, from our previous experiences, that we needed to provide healthier materials, more common sense materials. And I dove into this world of chemical sensitivity, sick building syndrome, environmental illness, all of these words and phrases that I didn't know before. And I found that it's estimated between 25 and 30% of the world's population actually suffers from a chemical sensitivity, whether they know it or not. Now, back then, in the early 90s, people who were buying our products were those folks who didn't really have much of a choice. You know, it was, if we're going to do any remodeling building whatsoever, we have to buy products that meet our health requirements. And how many customers did you have back then? I would imagine there were not that many people who were 
that sick from building materials or aware that they were that sick because of their building materials? Sure. You know, obviously the number of clients has increased, but I think that it's really a function of availability of information. When we started the company, I started the company in the early nineties, we didn't have the internet and people would find out about us because they knew that we sold a brand of paint called AFM Safe Coat. They found out about Safe Coat because they wrote a, read a book about, you know, prescriptions for a healthy house or they wrote they read a book called, you know, a the healthy home book and AFM was listed as the resource for healthier toxin-free paints and coatings. Magazines at the time that were available like Natural Interiors would talk about it. And then the internet and all of a sudden information is available worldwide. And as people started reading about others who suffered from this this debilitating disease, they said, actually, I kind of have that too. And I don't suffer that badly, but I certainly do get a headache when I walk into a space that's been freshly carpeted or painted. And it really just took off from there. Back in the early 90s, 95% of my customer base were people with extreme sensitivities. 5% were just those looking to live in a healthier space. Today, it's almost flipped. I think 5% of my customer base are those with extreme real chemical sensitivities. And I'll talk about that in a second. And the rest are those who either have the desire to live in a healthier home for them and their family and or they are affected by strong odors and aromas. Now, true chemical sensitivity is essentially the body's inability to filter chemicals as they enter into the blood system, as they're inhaled, ingested, or absorbed. Those who suffer from sensitivities but aren't necessarily diagnosed as multiple chemical sensitive can actually have a reaction to, and then sometimes it is to the chemical, but a lot of times it's actually because of the fight or flight response that the body goes into when they come in contact with a chemical substance that, that the body doesn't recognize. And think of it this way. If you never smoked a cigarette before in your life, the very first time you puff on a cigarette and you try to inhale it, your body coughs it out. That's your body's way of rejecting a pollutant. After a period of time, the body says, the mind says, well, you're going to do this. I might as well accept it. And it it makes the provisions within the, the body to allow it. People with true MCS, that it never happens. They never get used to it. And every single time they come in contact with this chemical or a petrochemically related material, they have the exact same reaction. They never have the ability to normalize that. And what happens over time is people can sense there is something dangerous coming. So you walk into a room and you smell something you see something, you sense something that your body doesn't recognize, and your mind says, oh, this is going to be problematic, and it actually causes the exact same adrenaline release, which causes a lot of the same physical symptoms of a true reaction, but it's essentially a warning to the body saying, get out. 
And this is in, in for years, you'd hear doctors say, oh, it's all in their head. It's psychosomatic. So obviously that's not true, but what is true is the mind can cause a physical reaction. And so we're finding that through things like dynamic neural retraining and other ways of retraining the brain that people can get more used to the situation and say, is this a true danger? Is this just a kind of a false flag that the brain is sending? And so a lot of people who don't have true chemical sensitivity, they actually just have a heightened response syndrome and they are a response system, you know, whether it's a, maybe they have a mast cell disorder, maybe they have a chronic inflammation response issue. Their nervous system is just hyperactive. And so they put them into this fight or flight, whether it is actually dangerous or not. So I'm seeing a lot more of that. That's so interesting. So you mentioned MCS, which yes. stands for multiple chemical sensitivity. Yes. The way you were describing it, it sounded like some people are just genetically predisposed. And I'm mm. sure that's true. Mm -hmm. But I'm wondering in your experience, and I'm not sure what the peer-reviewed science says on this, mm -hmm. but I imagine it can be developed as well. So if your yes. body is overburdened by various things, whether it's an overwhelming amount of chemical exposure, but also maybe stress and poor diet, not enough sleep, you can probably develop MCS as well, don't you think? I do think. And I, and so, of course, it, there's always a situation where somebody tests for the HLA-DR gene and finds that they have the genetic predisposition to have mold sensitivity. That can also lead to chemical sensitivity because the the toxin within the body is very similar. Beyond that, though, there's really just a few ways that be someone becomes chemically sensitive. First is massive exposure. Somewhere along their life, they they came in contact with something that was a, a massive exposure to a pesticide, to a large installation of a toxic building material to a something like legionnaire's disease where everybody was exposed to that toxin at the same time so that's one way somebody becomes chemically sensitive second way is a life altering or a a, a, a body altering issue like a car accident major surgery pregnancy something that actually changes the chemistry and changes the electrical impulses within the body, your body can actually turn that into a chemical sensitivity. The third way is probably the most common way is low level exposure over a long period of time. And you've probably heard this said before by others, but the way I've always said this is the body is born with a receptacle within it. And let's just say, let's just call it a big bucket. And as we live our life, we're absorbing chemicals through our skin, through, you know, inhalation, ingestion, and these chemicals get dumped into this, into this bucket. And most people have the ability then to filter that out and get it out of their system. With chemical sensitivity, long level exposure over a long period of time, that bucket gets filled up and now it starts to overflow. And the body doesn't know what to do because it doesn't have the ability to actually filter it out anymore because it's spilling over the top. And so anytime somebody comes in contact with a chemical that is very similar to either in molecular weight because they're similar petrochemicals, the body has the same reaction. And so that that's probably the most common way somebody becomes chemically sensitive, truly chemically sensitive. Now, 
years ago, 30 years ago, when I started the business, the MCS community around the world was actually highly anticipating the addition of MCS to the American Medical Association's Clopedia of Diseases. It was going to be added at the time. And I remember it was just a matter of years before the AMA recognizes MCS as a true disease. It has been recognized by the by American with Disabilities Act. It's been recognized by the federal government when it comes to housing and and other issues with so whether you have a a any type of a, a debilitating disease that affects the way you, you work or the way you walk, chemical sensitivity is is actually looked at the same way. However, the AMA never actually added it. And I think this is a good thing because what we have been finding out now in the last five to 10 years is that MCS is not really the disease. It's a symptom of other underlying diseases like mast cell activation syndrome, chronic inflammation response disease, and, and others. And so I think more research now is going into this because now they're looking at this as a symptom of something else. And I don't know if you have come across the science on how our radiation exposures to mm. our everyday devices can also make us more vulnerable to these toxic chemicals and heavy metals. Without a doubt, I was on the board of directors of the, the Building Biology Institute for a few years, and and that organization really digs deep into this. And now with all of my consulting, we talk about building materials, of course. You know, my background is architecture and commercial construction, so this is what I know best. But we do talk about electromagnetic fields and then the the effects of microwaves or, or RF waves coming from our cell devices, from all of our appliances now that are that are Wi-Fi enabled, we're surrounded by it. And yes, that can have a, a debilitating effect on our bodies. It actually can start to break down cell structure, which allows now for the introduction of more toxins and pollutants into the body. Yeah. And it's very important that parents, women who are pregnant, mm. People of childbearing ages are aware that prenatal exposures are really meaningful. So the sooner you can start getting informed and making changes, the better off your children and future children will be. You are 100% correct there. So what is your personal story? What inspired you to dive deep into this arena? Well... I, I appreciate that question because it seems like I've been doing this for so long. Sometimes I forget where, where it even started. I was 21 years old. I was fresh out of school. I, I started working in my family's business. Actually, we are a, a building material supplier for the commercial construction industry. And my, I remember growing up, you know, we'd have talk around the dinner table. It wasn't about school or about sports. I would always listen to my mom and dad talk about architects and contractors and construction. So as, at a young age, I was always excited about building. And so I, I, I get out of school, you know, and, and I, I focused on marketing in school, but I really wanted to work for the family business. And so I was given the task of working with engineering firms around the country 
and architectural firms, large architectural firms, to work with them to specify high performance coatings for water towers and below grade parking structures and water treatment plants. So epoxies, urethanes, really expensive, durable coatings. Well, we were working on a project in Milwaukee back in 92, and we had one of our materials specified for the project. And I went to the job site to do some inspections. And when I got there, they had just finished applying the primer coat. And I remember the job trailer getting phone calls from people living in the condos above complaining about the the solvent fumes. And of course, they're looking at me and I, I said, well, I, I, I can't help you there because this is all water-based. We, we're not using solvent-based products. We're using just water-based. So it can't be that. Must be something else. An hour later, we get a phone call from another one of the, the occupants there. He happens to be a United States senator who's got a condo in Milwaukee. He was working there for the week. And I, of course, you know, yes, Mr. Senator, I, you know, we will, we'll dig into the bottom of this for you. Well, the final straw came when three of our own workers were rushed to the hospital because of inhalation complications. They couldn't breathe. The coatings, as they were curing, were literally sucking the oxygen out of the room for the curing process. And at that point, I had to stop the job site, stop the project, open up all the the tarps that we put up so we can get fresh air in there, of course. And, and And our workers were fine. But first of all, I was 21 years old, new in the business. I was scared to death that I'm poisoning my my own workers. I'm poisoning my customers. There's got to be something else out there that can do this without all the, the danger. And so about, it, about a week and a half went by, and I finally got a phone call from a friend of mine in the industry. And he said, all right, there's a company in California that makes these coatings that are supposedly toxin-free. I don't know if they can do anything that will work for your project, but you might want to reach out to them because they have a pretty interesting story. So I reached out to them. That that little company was AFM, American Formulating and Manufacturing. And I found that they made paints and coatings and sealers and a whole host of products for people who had chemical sensitivities and people who couldn't tolerate traditional building materials. And it just clicked in my head. I said, this is what we got to do. If there are products out there that can we can use to to finish our houses and finish our projects, why wouldn't we be using this stuff? What's the downside? Well, the downside, of course, is what well, does it cost more? Well, at the time, it really didn't. And still today, it really doesn't. But it was different. It's not what the industry was used to. And so, but I thought, okay, I'm up for a challenge. I've got some friends in the business and, and let me see what I can do. So I worked out an agreement with AFM. And I remember at the time, one of my clients was the Milwaukee County Medical Complex, largest medical complex in Wisconsin. And I knew the the head of buildings and maintenance, and I asked him if he would try some of our paint. Yeah, of course. And he says, you know, when we have to paint one hospital room, we actually have to close the entire floor because we have staff members who get headaches when we paint. So we have to either close the whole floor or we have to coordinate when they are off of work for the next few days so we can allow the stuff to cure. And I thought, well, you're going to love this then because there's no odor to this paint, so on and so forth. Painting contractors putting it on and saying, this is the worst stuff I've ever used. I'll never use it again. And I didn't get 
get any work from them. But I found out later on that the the painter didn't like it. It's because he wouldn't be able to buy paint for all the side jobs at the hospital pricing. So it's purely a, just a financial thing. When I was doing these types of presentations, doctors and nurses and staff would come up to me and say, where can I buy this for my house? Because my child has sensitivities or what have you, and, and we can't use traditional materials. And so again, 1992, 93, at that point, I said, we're going to start a business selling retail toxin-free building materials because it just makes sense. And at the time, the term green was just a color. You know, it wasn't a, a way of life. It wasn't a, a movement. This is way before the U.S. Green Building Council started. This is way before the LEED project, before Green Guard, Green Seal, any of this. This is back when people just wanted to do something a little bit better. And so I called these materials common sense, healthy building materials. And it kind of went off from there. And and when I started with one manufacturer, AFM, now I've got 150 and over 7,000 products that we can use to help build or remodel a healthier home. And we have all these different levels to do it at. If you're truly chemically sensitive, we can build you a home you can tolerate. If you're just trying to do better for you and your family, but you have a really tight budget, we can do that too. We don't use metrics to say this is a healthy home or this is a not a healthy home because there is no metric for that. It's so individual. Everybody has their own threshold. So we help build a home that is going to meet your threshold for you and your family. And the the true test is living in that home and knowing that it, it's the healthiest space you'll be in all day. I love how much experience you have with products that are going to be safe enough and comfortable enough for your customers with MCS. When you decide to sell new products, how do you test or make sure that they are really safe? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, the first of all, the the first test that we do is the test of of necessity is this something that we need to get involved with and what i mean by that is when we get involved with selling a certain product we need to know that we will have the ability to impact the distribution of it positively so it's easier for customers to get because the biggest problem we've had over the years is lack of availability of materials so it's got to be in a situation where if we do sell it, we can improve the the availability. We can keep the pricing down because, you know, prices of materials are so expensive these days. And that we feel that the company itself that makes these materials are what I would call just a good corporate citizen. You know, a company that I feel that I can stand behind and say, I'm I'm happy to work with these folks. Now that's all anecdotal, right? So from the standpoint of how do I decide if a product is safe enough to sell? So I actually give it the AFM test. And, and what I mean by that is AFM being the first company I ever started working with, their mission is to develop and, and make the healthiest materials available for their kind. So if they're going to make a certain type of wood stain, it's going to be the healthiest wood stain available. 
if they're going to make a certain type of all-purpose cleaner, it's got to be the healthiest all-purpose cleaner available. And so I look at the product list that they, this manufacturer, let's say a new manufacturer, XYZ comes. Well, could they do better with 50% of the products? Yeah, probably. So maybe I don't want to be aligned with them because I, I know that they are cutting corners because of pricing and you know marketing and so forth. But then sometimes I say, yeah, but some of their products are just so healthy based upon our testing. So what is our testing? So we have the North American, ex, I guess, exclusive right to a test called a frat test. Frat test is a formaldehyde release attenuation test. It's the ability for us to actually test a material to see if it does have any formaldehyde off-gassing. And why this is important, especially now, is that there are so many materials that are being sold, being called formaldehyde-free, but they do actually release formaldehyde. And so an example of that in the carpet business, there are many manufacturers that are selling formaldehyde-free carpets, and they'll tell their customers that they're zero VOC and they're formaldehyde-free. Well, first of all, VOCs have nothing to do with human health, so I disregard that right away. VOCs are regulated because of outdoor air pollution, not because of human health. All right, now they say they're formaldehyde-free. Okay, so I test it, and I find that they actually release 150 parts per billion of formaldehyde. Now what? Well, we find out that the manufacturer doesn't add formaldehyde, the manufacturer doesn't use formaldehyde, but maybe the manufacturer's supplier of the fiber uses a dye that contains formaldehyde. And so the, the carpet manufacturer can claim legally, we do not use formaldehyde. Their, their suppliers do. And so they're, they're just not being forthright. We're finding this an awful lot. So we actually test every single product we sell to make sure it does not release formaldehyde. Or if it does, is it the lowest possible for that type of product? And so if it can meet that, if it can meet sort of the good guy test of are they a good corporate citizen? I, and, and, and then, you know, we look at them and other factors as well. But if it can meet those tests, then we will sell it. There are certain products that we do sell that will give the caveat that this meets a requirement for people who are maybe not extremely chemical sensitive, but they want to, they want to have the healthiest space that's affordable. Sometimes we have to do that for our clients. Because, you know, I wish if, if the world were perfect, I would sell nothing but non-toxic materials and everything would be affordable. Unfortunately, we deal in a world that people have budgets and we have to make sure that we can do the best for them that they can afford. But we give them those caveats that here's, here's what the downside is. But in looking at all the factors, this is the best we're going to do. I'd like to ask what you wish you knew sooner about... Mm -hmm a list of things. And my list comes from looking at your website. I like this approach because I think it's the most time efficient way for you to share information you wish more people knew and for the listeners to learn most quickly. You touched upon this earlier, but let's revisit what you wish more people knew about the relationship between environmental health and human health. Okay, what I wish people knew earlier is that materials generally that are marketed and sold as being environmentally friendly 
almost always are not human friendly also. We didn't find this out, or I should say we knew this, but the 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 general public didn't really start finding this out until after the 2009 to 2013 housing crash, because all the money went out of remodeling and building. And then when people finally got back into the market to do things around their house, it's as if the, those four years of waiting, they actually were able to learn that. You know, just because something is called green, it doesn't make it healthy. And if I'm going to be spending so much money on countertops in my house, I should probably get countertops that are healthier to to install, healthier to to maintain. So let's not spend $150 per square foot on recycled concrete and glass countertops that are still toxic to maintain because of the sealers. Maybe we should spend a little less on something like quartz that doesn't require a sealer and therefore there's no toxicity in the maintenance. So I wish people would have learned that way before that it would have saved a lot of folks, a lot of money in buying things that didn't ultimately affect their indoor air quality. The first time I realized this was many, many years ago, maybe around 2010. And I was sitting in a conference, I think for the sustainable furnishings council, Mm -hmm. learning that what they call the downcycling of plastic, which yes. is recycled plastic being possibly more harmful to human health than sure. maybe the original form of plastic. So you may be thinking you're doing something really great, which you are for the planet by buying something made of recycled plastic. Let's just say it's a plastic water bottle. I don't even right. know if it's legal, but sure, right. <laughs> but that I wish more people knew that recycled plastic can be more toxic to human health. Right. And even though that's good for the environment, it's not good for us humans. That's a great example. And so in in relating relating that to the building industry, I look at flooring materials. We do sell a brand of vinyl flooring that meets all of our requirements. Uh, but that vinyl is actually virgin vinyl. It's not recycled. And the reason why I do not sell recycled vinyl is because of exactly what you say. Re- the recycling process can introduce so many more chemicals into the into the built environment than you would see with virgin. Now, if it were me, if I had the magic wand, I would say no more vinyl, you know, because it's it's environmentally it's detrimental. But I also have to answer to my customers who need a certain price point and durability factor. And so, and it's got to meet their health requirements. So if I'm going to recommend something that meets all of those, I'll recommend the virgin vinyl flooring materials in those situations. So yes, I completely agree with you. I didn't know about virgin vinyl. What's wonderful is no matter what your price point, the Green Design Center can work with you to create the healthiest options given your budget and other objectives. Okay, so what do you wish more people knew about the indoor environment, but specifically in your home? I wish people knew, and people are starting to figure this out now because of the pandemic. I wish people understood and really took to heart the fact that their home needs to be their sanctuary, that the indoor air quality of their home is paramount to their to your life and so 
and even squeezing that down, the bedrooms of your home need to be the healthiest spaces you are in all day long because we ho- we hopefully spend six to eight hours a night sleeping. And if we're in that room and we're forced to breathe that air, we're forced to live in the environment where all these pollutants, including electromagnetic fields and so forth, can affect you, we're not getting that restorative sleep. We need that. And because of the pandemic, the silver lining of that is the fact that people are finally starting to get it because they were forced to be at home longer, right? And they're and they, they're they're forced to be working from home. The kids are schooling from home, and people are sitting around saying, "Well, if I'm going to be in this environment, maybe if I have to, you know, repaint this room, maybe I should use less toxic paint. Maybe I should think about." another type of flooring material besides carpet because carpet is the worst thing that somebody can have in their home. So they're starting to think about these things. And so 20 years ago, I think people just assumed their home was safe because it's their home. They're not the ones polluting. You know, they're not the, they're not wearing enormous amounts of cologne and perfume and so forth. People just assumed their home was healthy. And we're now learning that that assumption is completely wrong. My next question you addressed earlier, but I want to revisit it. What do you wish more people knew about VOCs and zero VOCs? Yes. Well, thank you for asking that question because I did sort of touch on it before and I'd rather dig into a little bit more. So, and I'm sure your audience knows, but for those maybe listening that haven't heard this before, a VOC is what's called a volatile organic compound. Sounds dangerous. It sounds you know, menacing, but it's actually just a, it's a chemical description. It's a scientific description for any carbon-based molecule that is readily vaporized at room temperature that could release and then rise all the way up to the upper atmosphere outside, tens of thousands of feet up above the ground, react with nitrogen and UV and create low-level smog. That's it. That is the EPA de- definition of what a VOC is. A VOC, when it, the word volatile does not mean scary or dangerous or harmful, it just means it's readily vaporized. So back in the mid 90s, when VOCs became first regulated by the EPA because of outdoor air pollution, there was this push by the, the EPA to essentially regulate VOCs of manufacturers of things like paints and coatings. And they regulated the VOC output very similar to the cafe standards of automobiles. So if you were a big paint manufacturer and you made 50 products, the average VOC per product had to be at a certain level, very similar to automobiles and gas mileage. And so back then, in the late 90s, there were stories of manufacturers making thousands of gallons of zero VOC coatings, stick them in a warehouse, never for sale, just so they could still make the high VOC solvent-based products and sell them. Well, then government got a little more persuasive about this. And so over the years, VOCs again started to become lower and lower because of outdoor air pollution regulations. Started in California with with the South Coast Management District and California Air Resource Board and so forth. And then it swept across the country. But what what happened was in the paint and coatings industry specifically, the painters, the contractors 
didn't like these low and zero VOC paints. They didn't work very well. The reason why they didn't work very well is that solvents in paints actually do some pretty good things for how the paint goes on, how it cures, how it, how it performs. Painters hated it. But the manufacturers needed to, you know, by, by decree, they needed to sell these materials. So they started changing the marketing. And they're changing the marketing to, you want to buy this product because it's environmentally friendly, because it's air safe because it's green and people consumers took that to meaning that means it's safe for me. Okay. I'm not sure how that correlation ever came about, but it happened. And so since then people have been buying zero VOC paints specifically for the reason that they think it's healthier for them. Now, when I said before that a, a VOC is a volatile organic compound, I didn't say anything about human health and toxicity. I just said, low-level smog and ozone. It is true that some VOCs are very, very harmful for humans just coming in contact with them. Very true. Methyl ethyl ketone, methyl isobutyl ketone, highly, highly toxic VOCs. I wouldn't want to be around them. It's also true that there are many VOCs that are completely harmless to humans. Matter of fact, if anybody listening peeled an orange for breakfast this morning, you released 850 grams per liter of VOCs. Doesn't mean it's going to hurt you. Out of the 92,000 plus chemicals that are available for use in this country, about 287 of them are classified as VOCs. Now, out of those, there's actually a group of about 40 VOCs that the EPA has put on a special list called unregulated, meaning they are volatile, they are carbon-based, but when they rise to the upper atmosphere, they're not photocatalytic, so they will not react to UV. Therefore, the manufacturers have lobbied the EPA enough to allow for the use of these chemicals in their materials because they don't actually harm the environment. Well, that sounds okay, I guess. However, because the EPA is not the human protection agency, they don't care that these chemicals are still toxic to humans. Example, if you've ever used nail polish remover, that's acetone. Acetone is a highly dangerous, highly volatile carbon-based solvent. It does not contribute to outdoor air pollution because it's not photocatalytic. Highly dangerous so to humans, right? If you use that in paint, it's zero VOC. Same with ammonia, same with butyl acetate, and same with about 37 other chemicals. And therefore, when you see a product that is zero VOC, that cannot and should not be the only metric you use to determine whether or not it's safe for you, because it doesn't tell you anything about health and safety. It tells you about outdoor environment. And so... That's, again, why I work with the AFM Safeco product, because their products are not just zero VOC to meet the governmental regulations. They're free of health hazards and toxins. They always have been. They always will be. And they've been doctor recommended since 1981. And I've used that product with over 30,000 of my own customers over the, over the course of 30 years. And I'm sure many more out there have used it. You know, it's something we're comfortable with. And, and, but the, the next question is, well, then how do you prove it's non-toxic. What's the test? 
Well, it goes back to what we've just talked about for the last 45 minutes. It's it's anecdotal. Can people with the most extreme chemical sensitivities use this product and live in their home? Yes. Do people who normally get severe reactions from using traditional paints and coatings get the same reaction with AFM safe coat? No, not normally. Now I mean that by everybody is different, of course, and there's always a possibility. Nothing's perfect, but for the most part, this has been our our situation. And then the other thing is we can say if there's no hazardous air pollutants, there's none of this, none of that. One of the tests that people will use is, well, let me look at the safety data sheet and see what's on there. That's completely inaccurate. A safety data sheet is not for consumer use. A safety data sheet is made in case there's a job site spill, in case there's a truck spill. How do they contain it? How do they clean it up? Never use a safety data sheet for any bit of information on whether or not a product is healthy or safe for you in your home because it's that's not what it's for. So how can a consumer identify safer paint products? It sounds mm-hmm. like AFM, mm-hmm. like all their products you would feel very comfortable using. But if maybe there was a paint color, you know, they want to broaden their mm-hmm. their search for paint colors or textures and they're looking at other brands. Are there certifications that could help eliminate the most toxic options? Right now, no, there are no certifications, mainly because nothing has been written to the extent of what AFM has done. Years ago, when scientific certifications came out with their SCS Indoor Advantage Gold for paint, that was actually written around AFM. And... After a period of time, they loosened up the restrictions, I guess, and then AFM dropped out because they said, well, if anybody else can get into this, we don't want to be associated. What do I look for? Again, for me, I trust my customers. I think they're the experts, not me. They're the ones saying this is dangerous. What they tell me, it holds big weight with how I supply materials. But what do I look for? I look for a track record. I look for more than just a manufacturer stating this is better or something. This is safer. Okay. So how are you saying that in the last five years, 10 years, maybe just about every mainstream paint manufacturer has either been enjoined in a class action lawsuit or fined heavily by the FTC because of their inaccuracies about their claims. And AFM Safecoat remains the only company that hasn't. And there's a reason for that. And so I think that if you like, you know, somebody else's color, that's not a problem. Most of the AFM dealers across the country and our, ours included can match those colors. We all use the same color matching systems. And so whether it's a Ben Moore, Sherwin Williams or Farrow Ball, we can match them. And so I would say probably half of the colors we do on a daily basis are matched from other manufacturers. It's just kind of the way it is in the industry. But I really wish I had more companies that I could work with. I mean, I love AFM and I've been working with them for so long, but I do know that there are places around the country that it's hard to get. And I wish I could give people a good sense of comfort knowing that if you use this other brand, it's pretty darn close and you'll be okay. I just haven't had the ability to do that yet because none of them have really shown the ability to have that same approach as AFM. And but I, I'd imagine at some point other manufacturers will because that's what's been happening now in the industry with flooring, with cabinetry, with countertop materials, with other building materials. 
paints and coatings are just, you know, eventually another manufacturer is going to grab the reins and say, we can do this too, because it's needed. And people do need that. If you go down to your big box store today, nothing you find there will be actually healthy for the occupants. It'll be eco-friendly, environmentally friendly, green. It'll meet all those buzzwords and it'll be really convenient. And that's the one thing that we always have trouble with is convenience. Now with the pandemic, people have gotten used to going online, buying their goods and having it delivered. So we have seen a huge increase in online business since then. And I think that's a good thing, but still people want that convenience because they forgot they needed to paint a bathroom on Sunday and, you know, it's too late to order today. So I think eventually some other company will, will grab that and run with it. So what types of products does AFM produce? There are paints, sealers, mm-hmm. caulk? Yeah. So years ago when AFM first started, they, re- they created the first sealer that you could use on off-gassing surfaces to block the off-gassing. And that was a product at the time called Water Seal. Now it's called Safe Seal. They make about 55 different types of paints and coatings, ranging from wall paint, interior wall paint to exterior wall paint to high-performance polyurethanes for wood floors, high-performance acrylic finishes for cabinetry, and then some really exotic like below-grade waterproofing materials, mastics for ductwork, zivs, caulking materials. They What they try to do is, is come up with a solution to a problem that everybody has in their house. Like if I'm going to install new HVAC equipment and I have to put new ductwork in, what am I going to use to seal the ducts? Well, it's a mastic that's completely non-toxic. So when the air is on, you're not sucking in all these pollutants from the mastic. Below-grade waterproofing, same thing. So just about anything inside of the home that is a liquid-applied material that has to cure, AFM has a healthier alternative for. What do you wish more people knew about wood? And wood products, whether it's hardwood or composites. That's a great question. I wish people knew two things, three things. (laughs) Now I'm thinking about this. I wish people knew wood had a smell that never goes away. And every species has their own aroma. Some it's more than others. And there's nothing you can do to ever seal it up because there is... I can seal up chemical off-gassing really easy, but I can't seal up organic smells. That's the most complex chemical there is, is an organic smell. Are they unhealthy? Some can be, yeah. that There's actually some aromas that from wood. The aromas are, are derived from the wood sugars and the wood terpenes that come off the wood, and some woods are far less healthy than others and can cause very severe reactions. The least is going to be things like maple and beech that are very, very light in grain. They have very little smell. The most will be these aromatics, you know, the 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 redwood and mahogany and 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 mesquite, and then some more exotic woods that can be really problematic for people with allergies and asthma. So that's the first thing I wish people knew. The second thing I wish people knew is that wood is hydroscopic. Wood is a sponge. When we use wood in our house, it is highly affected by humidity levels, high or low. And people love using wood for flooring materials and cabinetry and furniture, of course. But if they live in a climate 
that is very, very dry, they need to sometimes add in humidity in the HVAC system so that the wood doesn't crack. If they live in an environment that is very, very moist, it's the opposite. You have to dehumidify so that the wood doesn't swell. So I wish people knew more about that. And that has to do with the salespeople who are talking to them about these things. The third thing is, I wish people knew that wood, especially exterior, requires a lot of maintenance. Wood is beautiful. I love using as much wood in a home as possible because I love the the feeling it gives you of, of, of trying to attach to nature inside of the home. I love the anything that has to do with biophilic design. Again, it's trying to become one with nature. However, when you use wood, a lot of times outside of the home and a lot of times inside, the maintenance is just, it's more than what people think they need because wood, again, is hydroscopic, absorbs moisture. Wood can stain, wood can crack, wood can split, wood can scratch. And especially outside, wood can absorb water so much that whatever coating you put on it can peel right off. And I think people just assume that because we use building products, they just magically sometimes take care of themselves. But wood really does require a lot of maintenance. What do you wish more people knew about natural linoleum? First off, that people knew the difference between natural linoleum and what people call linoleum. Linoleum is a compound word meaning linseed and jute. Linoleum was first manufactured in the 1860s, 1870s in Europe, and it's a combination of of linseed oil, pine resin, wood flour, mineral pigments, some cork flour, and it's it's uh, mixed up and then calendared or spread onto a jute backing. That's true linoleum. It's actually made the exact same way in the exact same places that it was 150 years ago. It's all manufactured in Europe. That is true linoleum. True linoleum is antibacterial and antistatic naturally because of the linseed oil. True linoleum gets harder with age. It's actually considered a 50-year floor for commercial installation. So it'll usually the house falls down around it. That is true linoleum. In the 1950s, when plastics were first developed and for flooring, Armstrong came out with a flooring called Congolium, which was their plastic version of true linoleum. And over the years, the term linoleum became interchangeable, very similar to the, to the term Band-Aid or Kleenex. Linoleum just became the word you use for any sheet flooring material. So 99% of the time when a client calls up and says, I've got an old linoleum floor I want to replace, what they really mean is I've got a vinyl floor. And so the two are completely different. They act differently. They install differently. They'll last different lengths of time. So I, I really wish people knew all those things about true linoleum because true linoleum is still one of the absolute best flooring materials you can install in your home or business today. And the Green Design Center sells natural lin. I'm having a hard time saying it. Linoleum tiles. Yes. Floor materials. So yes, we do. Listeners can visit your website to check that out. Why don't we talk about vinyl? I've assumed listeners 
know how toxic vinyl generally is, but mm -hmm. let's not assume that. And I'd love to hear what do you wish more people knew about vinyl? So I remember going to the first couple of U.S. Green Building Council Green Build shows in the in the country. I think maybe it was like at show number four, number five. The Vinyl Institute of the United States had a giant booth. And basically, it was a giant booth with just one table that said, let's have a conversation. And at the time, I was offended. I thought, how dare you? You know, here's a company making vinyl, blah, blah, blah. I kind of had, you know, drank the Kool-Aid a bit in, about it. The older I get, the more, the wiser I get, I believe. I'm finding out that just because something is manufactured doesn't mean it's bad. I'm finding that just because something's natural doesn't necessarily mean it's good. Vinyl is one of those in-betweens. To me, vinyl is something that I wish we could avoid because number one, every bit of vinyl ever manufactured in this world still exists today. There's no way to get rid of it. So from a long-term perspective, I think somewhere down the road, whether it's a hundred years or a thousand years, this will be a problem. Number two, I would not want to be in the manufacturing plant of this material. I think the people who work at these places, I, I fear for their health and their life down the road again. But then I look at the customers that I have with their chemical sensitivities. And also you think of somebody who's had chemical sensitivity for 20 years, they've exhausted just about every bit of savings they've ever had and trying to fight this. And now they need to replace windows. What do they do? Well, the least expensive window out there is a vinyl frame window. In good conscience, I can't sell somebody a vinyl frame window without telling them there are better products out there. There are healthier products out there. Aluminum frame windows, fiberglass frame windows, even wood frame windows for the most part are better than vinyl, but vinyl's getting better. Vinyl is cleaning up their act. The harder the vinyl is, the less likely it is to contain what are called plasticizers, which are the phthalates that are released from plastics. There's a study that came out just last week saying that 95% of household dust around the world contains phthalates. These are these endocrine disruptors that are coming off of every bit of plastic that we've ever had in our home. But the, the vinyl in the plastics industry, they're cleaning themselves up. They're taking these phthalates out. So they are getting better. So then I have to weigh the the differences between do I recommend they buy $10,000 worth of vinyl windows or $25,000 worth of fiberglass windows? Can they afford it? And I look at the amount of exposure and say, well, on their entire exterior of their home, 5% of that exterior is window. Out of that window, less than 5% is actually a vinyl frame. So you have such a small fraction of of material that could actually contribute to indoor air problems in your home. So now is that extra $15,000 worth it to go to fiberglass? These are the discussions I have with my consulting clients literally every hour of every day. And this is why I can't put this into some publication. I've been asked to write a book on how to build a healthy home for 25 years. I can't literally have started writing a book seven times and I get at the end of chapter one, I say, well, I got to start over again because things have changed. So I decided I'm not going to write a book. I'm going to, I'm going to consult. I'll do my podcast. I'm, I want to start a, I will be starting a, a weekly live YouTube program. This is going to be interactive and dynamic because things do change very, very fast. I applaud you 
because you actually had the ability to sit down and write a book about this. And I wish I, I don't, A, I don't have the, the skill set for it. I can speak, but I can't write very well. And B, uh, because of the detail that I go into with my clients, I, I, f- I fear that if I recommend something in chapter three that is obsolete by the time it's published, I'm going to be at fault and I don't want to do that. So I, I'm taking a different path. So anyway, that's kind of a convoluted way of talking about vinyl. But but I, I do think that there are ways to look at things through different lenses to say, maybe this is a better way to go for this client because at this this point in time, this might be the best for them. I wish it wasn't even an option, but because it's an option, this gives them the best chance at moving forward. It's such a highly complex topic. I also worried about everything you mentioned in writing a book, plus a lot more. I bet. (laughs) And how to do it very responsibly. And I thought, how can I write a book that's a bit timeless? in Mm -hmm. an industry that's going to be changing pretty dramatically. And so I talk about household repeat offenders. These are common materials and ingredients that are present in a wide range and a long list of products. And we've talked through a lot of the household repeat offenders, like the wood and the adhesives and paints. Sure. So I think when people start to understand the components of things that create the things in their homes and their homes, then it becomes easier to make more strategic and mindful choices of where they want to allocate their budget. And so how you talked about working with clients about what kind of windows to buy, that's Mm -hmm. a perfect example of how you're creating a mindful home. It doesn't have, it can't be perfect. That's too expensive and very impractical. Well, I, I applaud you and thank you for doing that because these are things that need to be learned and they need to be read. Consumers need to know this. Then when it comes down to their specific home and their specific project, after they've absorbed everything that you've you've taught them, then they can reach out to somebody like me and say, now here's the detail. Here's the specific detail of how to fix your situation. I can't I can't tell them and teach them what what you have already. You know, you you did that better than anybody else. But I can certainly talk about those little details. If you have five more minutes, sure. Yeah. Okay. I have three more questions. Mm-hmm. So, one is about Prop sixty five, which is a requirement by the state of California that products that contain chemicals known to the state of California chemicals that contribute to things like adverse reproductive outcomes and cancer, that there needs to be a label on the product. Are you Mm -hmm. finding that that's helping the products like in the home building materials? No, I'm finding that it's actually making things worse. And and I'll, I'll, I'll explain why. Again, Prop 65 includes, you know, it's a list of and I, I don't I don't even know how many chemicals there are. A couple hundred chemicals on this on this list. A few hundred, I think. I think uh, just last I heard under three hundred. Okay. And then there's of course a list of of chemicals that were on the list and taken off. And there's a list of chemicals that should be on the list but aren't on there yet. I remember several years ago, a senator from New Jersey, Senator Lautenberg, was actually discussing this in a in a uh, congressional hearing about you know improving 
the Safer Chemicals Act and so forth. And a friend of mine was on that committee and asked me to just provide some some background information and some, you know, some anecdotal stuff. And at the time, and I believe this so today is still, when you give companies a list of chemicals they cannot use, what you're actually giving them is a list of chemicals they can use. There's less than 300 chemicals on on the Prop 65 list. There's 92,000 chemicals available for use. So just because it's not, it's not on the Prop 65 list does not mean it's not toxic, right? How many chemicals have ever been banned for use in this country? Less than 10. I think it's like seven and, and four or five of them are actually this, just different versions of the same chemical. Um, when a manufacturer, when a chemical company, whatever, invents a new chemical and, and sends it to the, the EPA for approval, the approval process is something like this. They get, they get the, the, the request, and I believe the EPA has 90 chemicals, uh, excuse me, 90 days to approve or deny the use or the acceptance of this chemical. If they don't, if they don't approve within that 90 days, the chemical is automatically rubber stamped as approved. And there's something like a two and a half, three year backlog right now. So what happens is company comes up with the chemical, it gets rubber stamped, it gets used. And then the only way it ever gets taken off of the list or banned or removed from production is if there are class action lawsuits from people who have gotten sick. So it seems to be the complete opposite of way of things of doing things. You know, let's prove its its health and safety first before allowing its use. But the way our government works, it's different. We'll just rubber stamp it. Now you have to you have to prove that it actually is dangerous. So think of all the chemicals that are used in building materials today that we know are dangerous. Formaldehyde. Obviously, it's a carcinogen still legal it's used extensively trichloroethane still used in carpeting highly toxic all these different chemicals and i think that prop 65 is a it's it's a good idea in theory but a lot of times the unintended consequence of doing the right thing is what you leave and what you're leaving is the right then for manufacturers to use things that are just a little bit different, but still just as dangerous. And because it's not on that list yet, they can, they can use it until, until enough people get sick or complain. I mean, think about a, a chemical like BPA, you know, bisphenol. BPA was a chemical found in plastics. That was an endocrine disruptor. So as soon as BPA was added to the Prop 65 list and was considered banned for use what do they replace it with bpb and now most scientists will say that bpb is actually more dangerous than bpa is so i it's one of those things that you have to be careful what you ask for and so my general consensus is i look for manufacturers that have transparency do they actually give us a list of ingredients I would rather know exactly what's in a product and not understand it, but then learn 
than not know what is there, but but to have the manufacturer say, but we don't use these things because that doesn't tell me the story. That just tells me what you don't use. You're not telling me what you do use in their place. My next question, I'm not sure how to frame it. After studying all that I've studied for 15 years, I was shocked to realize how many of the toxic chemicals and some heavy metals are petroleum-based. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering, is there something about it being petroleum-based or something with carbon being in it that makes it toxic to humans? Well, I think what people don't realize about petroleum is about what a miracle material it really is. Before humans had the ability to extract and then refine petroleum into its various solvents, um, I mean, obviously, this is the biggest reason why we had the industrial boom uh, is because of petroleum, because of being able to make not just fuel out of it, but think of, of just so many thousands of solvents that are made just from the refining process of of petroleum. Now, take those solvents and those chemicals and turn them into other materials. You have to remember that a lot of things that are that are made today using a petroleum byproduct are actually biophilic in design. And what I mean by that is in the true sense of the word biophilic is is essentially making indoor environment and or making making things that mimic nature the way nature makes it. Think of a product like a, a polyurethane for wood floors. Polyurethane was actually made originally from soy. From soy oil. And so some smart scientist somewhere said, you know what? We can do what's called a synthesized version of that. We could actually make in a lab a synthetic version, a petroleum-based version of this, just by mimicking the cell structure, by using these chemicals that we were able to extract out of petroleum. And that's what they did. And they ended up making polyurethane and making it better. You know, plastics are are essentially just a genetic version of concrete. And so they were able to make concrete better by making it into plastics. You know, you heard that that old BASF commercial from years ago. We don't make products. We make products better. And essentially, by the use of the chemistry learned and created through the petroleum industry, we have been able to make products better. But then there comes a point of how much better and now how much more are we changing the natural order of things by doing this? So is petroleum a bad thing? No, it's not. No matter how you look at things in, in life, to me, petroleum is one of those gifts from God that allows humankind to to thrive and prosper and live. Without that, we would not be where we were today, we'd still literally be living in caves. And so I think that it has allowed us to do so much, but as with anything, there's always too much of a good thing, right? And so how do we start to reduce that? Well, it's going to take a couple hundred years, but we'll get there. We can we can change things over to other materials that are more or less damaging to the environment that 
now that we know more and we know more because we're smarter, we're smarter because we have better education. We have better education because we have better indoor environments to educate. We've learned more. I mean, everything that we talk about now is derived from the fact that man has the ability to extract this miracle material out of the earth and use it for good. And so without that, we wouldn't have the knowledge we have today. Now that we have that knowledge and now that we know how dangerous it can be to the environment, how dangerous it can be to our indoor environment and our personal health, we need to use that education to create materials that are safer. And I think we are doing that. It's just, if you look back at the how many millions of years the earth has been around and a small fraction of the last 15, 20 years we've been trying to make healthier materials, we we are literally living in the cusp of a, the dawn of a new age, I guess. But, you know, you and I and our listeners will never see it, but somewhere down the road, 100 years, 1,000 years, nothing will be made out of a material that will cause harm to the environment or to us. And I, I truly believe that. I've never been more excited to be in this industry. And I've been in the industry for over 30 years. I feel like it's all new again because people are, there's just been an awakening. People are asking for healthier materials. This truly is just an exciting time to be doing this. That's so wonderful to hear. So we've covered a lot of information, which I, again, call household repeat offenders and A to Z of detoxing. So nice to have conversation about these products, especially with you and your expertise. In wrapping up, what are just like your top three tips to create a healthy home, especially for listeners who maybe aren't ready to like renovate or redo or build a space? What are three practical things they can do. Three practical things. First of all, it's more of a generalizing, but I I mentioned this before, make the bedroom the healthiest room in the house. Honestly, if you can only afford to buy a small little air purifier, that's not going to help the whole house, put it in the bedroom, right? Let's make sure that's the safest space. Second thing is I do believe strongly that carpeting is one of the worst things you can have in your home not only because of the toxicity that's inherent in most carpets, but because it's also a sponge for other things that are off-gassing. It can absorb into that and then release over time, causing additional harm. I'd rather have somebody live on a plywood subfloor than live on carpeting. Third thing is don't sweat the things that you can't take care of right now. Over the last several years, I've had so many people come to me and say, I wish I would have known about you two years ago when I remodeled my kitchen. Now I want to rip out everything and replace it. And so my response is, please do not do that. If it's causing harm, if you feel it's causing some direct acute symptom, then we'll talk. But if it's not, just be happy for what you have. Be Understand that living in a home that has that you're happy with, that you enjoy the beauty of it, that you wake up every morning and you go get a cup of coffee in your in your kitchen, you go, I love this kitchen. That's actually a healthy home attribute. Makes your body feel good, makes your mind feel good. Remember that. It's 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 not just the materials you use, but it's how you feel within the space. So 
don't sweat the things that you really don't have to sweat. And I guess the final thing would be, if I could add in a fourth, the way we maintain our homes, because we can all easily go down to the hardware store or the department store, or whatever, and buy some really toxic, lousy cleaning materials. Think about what you're using in your home. And it's very easy to buy, you know, some, you know, a branch basics cleaner or Safeco cleaner or, or Shackley basic H, something that doesn't actually contribute to indoor air problems. And it's, it's not going to harm you. And so think about the things that you maintain your home with as well. Thank you, Andy. And how can listen, you're available for consulting also? Yes. The easiest way to find me is to go to our website, which is thegreendesigncenter.com. On the front page, I think one of the first pictures that pop up will be consulting. I take consulting calls in either 15 minutes at a time or up to an hour. And quite honestly, my consulting calendar every day fills up and the calls can be something as simple as I'm replacing my front door. What materials do I need and and what would make it a healthier installation? All the way to, you know, right before we started talking, I got an email from one of my clients setting up a, an appointment with their contractor, architect, interior designer, and going over a set of blueprints. And my background in architecture and commercial construction, this is what I do. And so I'm going to help them go through every aspect of the blueprints to make sure that the correct materials and systems are specified so that it is the healthiest home possible. So really, it covers the gamut of healthy living. Great. Well, thank you so much for what you've done over the past 30 years and sharing your wisdom today with us. Thank Thank you. It's been absolutely my pleasure. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. Thanks for listening. For podcast show notes, visit www.ruanliving.com, spelled www.ruan is a non-toxic living.com. To more easily listen to other episodes, please subscribe to the Practical Non-Toxic Living Podcast. And if you'd like to support it, please like it and share it. Until next time.